on Saturday, June 27th from 6 to 9 with Sassafras Stomp, the Gawler family, and more. Tickets and info at maine-fair.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk from Mofka is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is C.J. Walk, <coughs> excuse me, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. Today on our show, uh, the topic for our show, we will be talking about pasture management and grazing. And I have a couple of guests with me here in the studio. Uh, but first, I would like to go over a few um, upcoming events uh, that are food and farming related that people might find of interest that are here in our community. So first one to mention is tomorrow on June 6th is a shiitake mushroom cultivation class. And that's what, that is tomorrow, Saturday, from 2 to 5 at Morris Farm in Wiscasset where mushroom aficionado Ben Watley of Watley Farm in Topsom will teach you how to drill, fill, and seal logs with mushroom spawn and how to care for your logs once you get them home. Participants will each take home two four-foot logs, and there is a fee that covers tuition, spawn, and materials, so please RSVP by emailing info at morrisfarm.org or by calling 882-4080. And more information can be found on the Morris Farm website at www.morrisfarm.org. Also this weekend, both the 6th and 7th, Saturday and Sunday, is the 15th annual Maine Fiber Frolic. Mm -hmm. And that is going on at the Windsor Fairgrounds on Route 32 in Windsor, Maine. Come visit me there. Oh, there we go. And (laughs) uh, more info can be found at fiberfrolic.com. And then... A two-part workshop related to pasture and forage management is happening on June 10th and June 17th, uh, both both Wednesdays. And the first part, June 10th, is from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Kennebec Cheesery in Sydney. And the second part is Wednesday, June 17th, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Oaklands Farm in Gardner. So both workshops will include a farm tour, discussion, and question and answer period. And that is presented by UMaine Cooperative Extension, uh, USDA, NRCS, and MOFCA as well. So registration is required. So for more info, you can contact your county cooperative extension office or call the MOFCA office at 568-4142. And then the last event I wanted to let folks know about is next weekend, June 13th, is the annual Farm and Homestead Day at Mofka, where you can learn everything you need to know about rural living in Maine. So this event is free, and for more information, you can go to the Mofka site, website, which is mofka.org, or you can call the Mofka office at 568-4142. So today, we are talking about pasture management and grazing, and I have two guests with me here in the studio for the show which I'd like to briefly introduce both of them and then give them each a chance to talk a bit about the work that we do. So 
Here with me is Rick Kurzbergen, and Rick is the Extension Professor for University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sustainable Dairy and Forage Systems. Thank you for being here, Rick. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure. And also here is Diane Shavera, and uh, Diane is Mofka's Organic Livestock Specialist, so thank you for being here, Diane. Yes, thank you. All right. Um, and I want to remind listeners that this is a call-in show, and we will open up the phone lines shortly. And at that time, I will give out the toll-free number to call. Um, but first, I just want to jump back to our guests. I gave a brief introduction with the name and title, but I'd um, like to give them each a chance to say a little bit about the work that they do. So, Rick, could you tell folks a little bit sure. what you do? So, again, I work for the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and I work out of the Waldo County office. Uh, and we're located right next to the tech school and actually in the town of Waldo. So I do a lot of work with with livestock producers, and most often my work is dealing with forage crops and dealing with production of forage crops that feed dairy cows. Mm -hmm. Um, I do work with other livestock as well. And so I uh, focus in on improving productivity of these forage crops. And really when we think about Maine and, and grazing crops, we're in a really unique situation in terms of the ability to grow some great cool season forages to feed livestock in a really efficient manner. So mm -hmm. that's what a lot of my emphasis uh, in terms of my educational programming. Uh, we do other material work as well, such as working with gardeners and working with um, 4-H and youth development as well. But mm -hmm. most of my work is centered on forage crop production and, and feeding livestock in Maine. Okay. All right. Thank you, Rick. And Diane, a little bit about the work that you do for MOFCA. Uh, I work with all kinds of livestock farmers, um, everything from dairy cows to rabbits. I'm going to a rabbit farm this afternoon. Uh, a, yeah, we focus a lot on feeding animals, the same as Rick does, but um, also health care and any kind of requirements for the organic regulations. Um, and I also work a lot with Maine Grass Farmers Network, which is another organization um, that focuses on feeding animals on pasture. So, and we have a conference every winter, early spring in March, and we also do a newsletter and have pasture walks in the summertime. So there will be a couple of pasture walks, so keep an eye on our um, website, and we'll have that information put out there, and it'll also come out in different email newsletters, too. So. Okay. Yep. And we'll try to mention those here on the next Mofka show as it comes up. Yep. <clears throat> okay, great. Um, so just to get a little bit of an introduction, I think people see pastures and fields as they drive through rural Maine. Um, but in terms of managing a pasture, I would think that there's different ways, different forage crops people would be growing, or is it grazing land as well? Um, so I guess, Rick, for a lot of the fields we tend to see seem to be for dairy farm production. So a lot, a lot of the fields you do see that are under cultivation, whether it's for corn silage and you see corn growing. And, and in Maine, most of the corn you see is actually grown for a forage crop, not as a grain crop. Mm -hmm. And then you also see lots of, of grass fields that are harvested or grazed with animals. And so we see a lot of that production, again, focused on dairy, but we also have a significant small ruminant livestock whether it's goats or sheep that and also, also graze and also them. beef cattle and beef cattle that uh, graze those crops or 
Mm-hmm. Again, farmers may harvest that as a stored forage for the winter. And, you know, we're in a pretty good situation in the Northeast where we can potentially graze our animals for up to six months of the year. And, and when you think about that, that's a really efficient way to feed animals because of the fact that they're harvesting their own feed and we don't have to go out there with a tractor and burn a lot of diesel fuel to mm-hmm. bring in feed for the winter. But we do have that six months where we do have to probably feed them stored feed. And so it's always a challenge. And one of the things that we need to think about is the fact that the quality of the forage we put up at this time of the year really influences how productive our animals will be during the winter. Yeah, for sure. The sooner you can get that hay crop off, the better off. And the better your hay is going to be the rest of the season, too, because the second crop will come in better than the two. Okay. So we're mentioning a little bit of haying here, first crop, second crop, first cut, second <laughs> cut. Um, yep. Just maybe a little bit of explanation for listeners if they're not aware. Um, I've noticed some fields being cut a little bit right now. I'm not sure if that's for hay or haylage, uh, but there are different forage materials, so maybe... Rick, would you want to mention sure. just kind of a couple of the terminologies, I guess? So one of, one of the ways to preserve feed is obviously by drying it, so making yep. dry hay. Um, and it's always a challenge in Maine, especially when we think about trying to make dry hay that's of quality. And what I mean quality means that we're harvesting that hay when it's in a vegetative state and not a reproductive state. So one of the sayings that... Uh, nutritionists always use uh, when they're talking about feeding animals is if you see the head the quality's dead <laughs> meaning that if you see the seed head on a grass it means that the nutritional quality is declined mm-hmm. so if we look out in the hay fields now you'll see a lot of seed heads and traditionally that if we wanted to harvest that as quality feed we should have done it two weeks ago mm-hmm. so it's always a challenge in maine because we don't always have the weather uh this year we actually did have some fairly decent weather early on yeah so we encourage people to get out there, even if the yield of that material might not have been great. It would have been really good quality feed for their animals. Mm-hmm. So one of the things a lot of producers do is make silage, which is another way of preserving that feed, which is a fermented feed product, meaning you're harvesting it as a wet product, and then you're storing it in an anaerobic situation. So a lot of people see these white bales or mushrooms, they call them, white <laughs> packages. Marshmallows. <with> marshmallows. <laughs> That's basically a round bale that's been baled in a moist condition, mm-hmm. and it's sealed up with plastic, and so it's an anaerobic fermentation. And during that fermentation product, process, the uh, acidity of that bale gets to a level that actually pickles it or ferments it, so it's a stable product that can be stored. Mm-hmm. And how long can those bales be stored? Well, I, theoretically, they can be stored forever if it's in a complete anaerobic situation. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of times you get a little hole in that plastic, and that plastic is not totally impermeable to oxygen. So Mm -hmm. it does deteriorate over time, but usually they're good for a year. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And does it seem like, uh, it seems like the silage and the fermented feeds, is that more common for dairies than some of the small ruminants? Well, it's just because of the equipment that's involved. If they had somebody else that could come in and cut that hay, or, or baleage and put mm-hmm. it up for them. Then, but most small producers don't have the equipment that's needed unless they're sharing it with somebody else. That's always a possibility. So, so ability to maybe share with neighbors or mm-hmm. yeah, okay. or have a dairy farmer that's nearby. Although then the tricky part is, is the dairy farmer always wants to put his hay up at the ideal time. So then you're working with somebody else who's really got their business is really important that they mm-hmm. get the feed off as well as 
as much quality as possible. So if they don't, then their their business is going to go down. So they're going to work on their fields first, and, mm -hmm. and you're usually second in line, so second. you don't get as good quality. So, so the prime balance. time is the prime time is the same for everybody. Yeah, so. and then the whole balance of of trying to balance pasture use and hay hay um, putting up the hay mm -hmm. is, is another thing that has to be. It has to be thought about a whole lot too by okay. farmers because if they don't, you want to you want to use your pastures up as much as possible. That's the cheapest way to feed your animals. But as Rick was saying, stuff goes to seed and then it loses quality some, and so then you're having to to try and balance between putting up hay and putting up and using the pasture. Mm -hmm. But I do want to have one little slight. I don't know if it's a disagreement with Rick. But <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, there we, there we a good go. argument going already. <laughs> there is a different theory that a lot of farmers feel, especially ruminant that ruminant livestock farmers that don't feed any kind of grain, that the balance between the carbohydrate and the protein is also an issue. Ruminant animals only need a certain level of protein in their diet, and when you harvest it when it's the best it's the best it's also the highest in protein and it's harder for those animals to balance that in their in their rumen and in their digestive system so sometimes taking it a little bit later the carbohydrate and protein ratio is is more ideal for the their their digestive system so mm -hmm. some farmers feel that they want to harvest the the pasture or the hay when it's a little bit higher so it mm -hmm. but it feeding the grain and balancing out the nutrition and having the fields tested or the hay tested mm -hmm. will help you a lot in making those decisions. So is there maybe a difference there between the need for the higher protein for maybe dairy production compared to beef production or sheep and goats? Or right, yes. Yeah, obviously a, a high-producing dairy cow is going to have a much higher level plane of nutrition. And yeah. She's going to need a, a higher level of protein and energy. Right. Um, and also the the other thing that comes into play is is intake potential, mm -hmm. and so the the better the quality, the mm -hmm. more immature it is, the more actually the animal can consume of that feed, and so the more an animal can eat, usually the higher level of production you're going to get out of that right. animal. Yeah. So with dairy animals, that's really significant, and they feed some kind of grain in order to balance that energy out. So. Okay. Okay. All right. So we need protein. The animals need protein for growth, and that's coming from from the grasses and the legumes. Correct. And, the and, and they get energy from those as well. Yeah. So it is a balancing act to some extent. Okay. And then issues with too high of a protein level? Yeah, because it just most of it gets come out in the urn. Just so. gets passed right through. And they don't have the energy to use. If they don't have enough energy in their diet, too. They don't have enough to use up all the protein. Okay. Right. <laughs> Diane and I could go on for a while here, so we might want to jump right. to the next topic. So. Move down the line here. Um, okay, so I, let's just jump back to the, the hay piece, and we had mentioned the first crop, second crop, first cut, second cut. Um, so the timing for the first cut is usually around this time in June, at least from what people see. Yeah, and, and actually for optimum quality, it is towards the end of May. So. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so when we, we see hay being cut in, in around July 4th. We call that patriotic hay, and it's usually <laughs> of, of not very good quality from the animal's perspective. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So then if you're making that first cut in kind of late spring, early summer, or whatever we like to call this time of the year, 
Um, then there's a period of regrowth where you would look to get a second cut for hay. And I think if we were talking dry hay, probably we're thinking one or two cuts, correct? Yeah, but I've, we've seen hay fields cut three times easily. Yeah, um, and even actually, four. Even or four. Or so. five. If it's the, the later in the season, you're not going to get as much production, mm-hmm. but you're going to get that really high quality because it's going to be in the vegetative state because the plant's working really hard to grow and put up its stored energy in, in its roots for the winter time. So Okay. Yeah, so that, that late stuff could be really high quality. Okay. So then yeah. did you have something to say? Well, I'm just going to say that, it, that when you look at it in terms of total production, a lot of people say they don't want to cut now because the yields aren't very high. But if you look at the total production for the year, you're actually going to improve yields. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's more cost because you're actually harvesting more times. Yep. So there's more time and more f- fuel and whatever for harvesting costs. But your total yield would actually be increase over the course of the whole season. Okay. Okay. And then in between these cuts, you know, with the um, I'm thinking along the lines of we're removing a lot of material from the field, removing a lot of nutrients for the animals. So in, in terms of returning those nutrients back onto the hayland, mm-hmm. um, what happens there kind of after the first cut of hay? What would be the next step before you're looking to make your second cut of hay? Well, obviously that's a great time to, you know, being applying stored manure that you've stored up from the winter from the animals either mm-hmm. being in a barn or some confined setting so obviously the, the the plants do need some fertilizer whether it's manure compost or commercial fertilizer mm-hmm. um, that needs to be done to regenerate some of that growth but one of the things we always emphasize as well is that we like to see a, a hay crop mixture that contains both a grass and a legume mm-hmm. and so whether that's clover or alfalfa um, that legume helps to provide nitrogen to some of the grass crops as well. So if you have a diverse mixture of grasses and legumes, that helps in terms of being able to provide some nitrogen. Okay. All right. For sure. Um, And then you'd be looking at, is there a typical um, season for that second cut of hay, or you just judge it on the growth, or the regrowth tends to be a little bit different than the first flush of the year, correct? It really depends upon the weather. (laughs) Some of it depends on the weather. You know, obviously rainfall, pay. Mm -hmm. part in that normally we're looking at 35 to 40 days and okay. an intensive dairy system we're looking at 35 to 40 days between cuttings okay yeah, yeah right. but i mean everybody was nervous the beginning part of this spring because we are you know like the past few mo- weeks because we had all that nice weather but no rain and stuff started to grow and then it kind of quit and it hasn't hadn't been growing until we got this dousing of rain so that at least that's helped a little bit mm-hmm. so and that's the balancing act is like the farmers they wanted to get that hay off and but it wasn't growing very well and then and then you get all that rain and then the fields get soggy and so then they have to not be they able to, to get out <laughs> yes so then their quality goes down a little bit uh-huh. so it is so it's always a little bit of a balancing act it seems, yes it is right? yes yeah, yeah for cool. sure all right well i just wanted to remind listeners that you are tuned into WERU and you're listening to Common Ground Radio brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we're talking about pasture management and grazing. And guests in the studio are Rick Kersbergen from uh, the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Diane Shavera from MOFCA. And we're going to look to open up the phone lines right now. So if you have any questions or comments and you'd like to call into the show, that toll-free number is one eight six six 
625-9378. And that's 866-625-9378. Okay. Um, well, let's switch over from the putting up the hay for the winter and talk a little bit more about managing fields and pastures for grazing, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, so I just wanted to kind of outline there's maybe a calendar, so to speak, or a strategy for making hay off of hayland. But when we talk about grazing animals out in a field, I'm wondering, is there a similar pattern, different techniques on how you're going to be managing your animals? Yep, for sure. Sure. So so that's why, you know, Diane mentioned the main grass farmers network. Well, main grass farmers network are actually livestock producers. Yep. But we call it the grass farmers network because we want them to think about grass as the crop, not the livestock they're trying to produce. Yeah, yeah. A good so, livestock farmer is a good grass farmer. So when we think about changing their perspective, you want to look at the grass crop and how it grows, and you want to maximize grass growth. Mm-hmm. And so, really, what you're thinking about doing is is trying to maximize the photosynthetic capability of the grass, and it, you know you need to think about how to do that so a grass grows fairly slowly when it's real short so you think about cutting your lawn at two inches or three inches and it grows back relatively slowly mm-hmm. but if you let that grass grow at about three inches or longer it's going to intercept more light it's mm-hmm. going to have increased photosynthetic capabilities and it's going to grow fairly fast till it gets to a height of about eight to ten inches where it starts to think about becoming reproductive or sending a seed head up Mm-hmm. And at that point, growth slows down. So as a grass farmer, you want to maximize that time when it's growing fast, so between 2 to 3 inches and 8 to 10 inches. Mm-hmm. And so you want to take your livestock and have them eat that grass when it's 8 to 10 inches tall down to about 3 inches mm-hmm. and just maximize that growth potential as it goes from 8 to 3 or 3 to 8, depending on how you want to look at it. Okay. Yeah. So the timing on that kind of depends upon the season and earlier in the season when the when the light is more intense, the p- plants do grow faster. So you're thinking about, I don't know, you could even get away with two weeks sometimes if, if there's enough if there's enough water and enough sun, you could come back to that same field in two weeks. But in the fall or later on in the summer, depending upon what the weather's like, you're going to have to wait at least three weeks or even even longer. Yeah. So so really you, you have to sit you what Diane's talking about is actually, you know, making sure that you rotate pastures, meaning that you're mm-hmm. not going to turn all your animals into a 50-acre field and come back and get them in September. <laughs> you want to uh, allocate that grass resource to your livestock in a managed way. So yep. you want to give them a certain amount of feed for a certain amount of time and then move them away to a new spot and let that grass grow at that higher rate of growth Mm -hmm. and maximize how much grass you can actually grow. So you use your animals to harvest the grass, but you need to manage that. So it means allocating that grass resource in a managed way, so small plots or paddocks, and you want to move those paddocks. So in intensive dairy rotation, we move those cows every 12 hours to Mm -hmm. a new paddock. In a beef operation, you may be moving them to a new paddock every three days. Okay. Yeah, that three-day thing is pretty pretty significant because after that point the the plants start to regrow and then the pl- and then the animals certainly want to eat the the nicest luscious stuff so they're going to go after that regrowth and they're going to leave the other stuff that you really wanted them to eat behind and then what survives is the stuff that they don't like as much yeah. because the other stuff gets knocked down and it learns 
loses its root reserve and starts to die out. Mm -hmm. So when you look at what we call an unmanaged pasture, you see lots of weeds tending to proliferate because the animals are going to consume what they desire and they're Mm going to keep going back to that same plot, which actually weakens that desirable plant and allows the undesirable plants to proliferate. Mm -hmm. So we start to see more weeds coming in. We start to see plants that the animals don't like or we see plants that have gone to seed head so they become more unpalatable. Um, So the idea is that you allocate the pasture resource in a way that you remove some of the selectivity so the animals don't get to choose. You Mm -hmm. put enough animals in a small space, they're all looking over their shoulders seeing what their neighbor's eating and saying, I got a better. Use the competition (laughs) to your advantage. So you want them to uh, level that pasture like your lawnmower levels your lawn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the teachings of holistic management, it's an organization, an international organization that actually talks about pasture management, among other things. Um, And it mentions that time per plant is the key thing to to, with what you're managing. You want to keep those animals only on on one plant in a certain for a certain time period. And that's how you balance your rotation and your regrowth. So the other catchphrase is just one bite, meaning that you want that animal to take one bite of that grass, but not two bites of the same piece of grass. Okay. Or two bites okay. right after each other sometimes, you know, because <laughs> they only can get so much depending upon how tall it is, right? But okay. uh, if they could get it down to three inches in one bite, I guess. And the other advantages of a system like this is that it keeps the the pasture in a, a situation that's going to minimize any runoff or, mm-hmm. you know, degradation of, of areas that might create some erosion. So if you're moving these animals, they're not in any one spot for a long period of time. They're not going to destroy any areas. They're mm-hmm. not going to have bare ground. And you're not going to have erosion or runoff out of those paddocks or pasture areas. Yeah, yeah, because you're using those animals in order to break up any kind of crusting that happens at the top or capping, as it's called, um, so that the animal impact actually helps to maintain the pasture, too. Mm-hmm. You use those little – and it works a whole lot better with – Cloven-footed animals, two, you know, mm-hmm. two toes versus one toe. That's why horses are so hard on pastures because they don't break things up. They just have more of a, a more of an effect of compacting. I mean, not to say that the other big animals don't do that too, but mm-hmm. but that cloven foot cuts into the grass and it breaks it up so that you don't end up with crust forming on the top. So that stops runoff too. Then I have seen some horse pastures with just kind of big hoof post holes into the ground in, yes. in early yeah. spring. Yeah, right? it's really hard to manage horses well on a pasture. You really have to pay a lot of attention in order to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and really when we talk about horses and pasture management, we, we talk about allocating them based on time, meaning yeah. that you, you need to have a sacrifice area where horses can hang out in, and mm-hmm. then you have a time when they would graze. Mm-hmm. And so you limit the amount of time that they're actually in the grazing area and then Mm-hmm. After a while, you stick in what we call the sacrifice or exercise area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a big, usually dry lot paddock. That's what it ends up turning out to be. And is that for the benefit of the the horse and its digestive si- system as no, well? Or just no, for the, for the pasture. For the pasture. Yeah, okay. no, it's to maintain the pasture for sure. I mean, you could give them a little bit of hay in there too if you want. If they're too fussy and they're not having mm-hmm. any fun out there, you could uh, – give them that or give them a ball to play with or something, you know, just something, <laughs> something to entertain to them. them yeah, because they're pretty bright animals and they yeah. need some entertainment. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so one question I had just within the, the regrowth of the plant. So if you're grazing too low mm. and the plant doesn't have the ability to 
photosynthesize new uh, sugars or resources, then is it pulling that energy and resources from the root of the plant? Yep. Exactly. And, that, and that, you know, that weakens the plant. Yeah. So what you want to do is to be able to make sure that you leave enough green material that the regrowth is going to come from photosynthesis, not from the carbohydrate root reserves. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I went. I visited a dairy farm the other day, and we went around and looked at a lot of his pastures, and the ones that he was managing well looked top notch. I mm-hmm. mean, he was doing well. There weren't a whole lot of weeds. I mean, there were some weeds in there, and and some of the weeds are actually good feed for the animals because they grow usually longer root, more of a tap root, so that they bring up nutrients that the grasses don't have available. So having them have that opportunity to eat some of the weeds too is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But then the weeds, there are bad ones too that they won't eat, and so those are the ones you don't want to take over. And this person's perennial pasture or permanent pasture, I guess, that he put his heifers out on, which is kind of common practice, the difference in the population of plants in that that permanent pasture versus the ones that he rotated Mm -hmm. and managed well was pretty amazing. There were too many burdocks and and too much... um, thistles and and things like that and those and it's because of what we're saying that Mm -hmm. the the grasses end up dying out because they get consumed too frequently and then they don't have any root reserves Mm -hmm. and the stuff that you don't want does really well (laughs) so too much selection for the ruminants part maybe it's pretty when they all go to seed but uh, (laughs) or to flower but (laughs) thistle seed is nice okay flowers okay um so then we've talked about really, <clears throat> I mean, rotational grazing is kind of what the mm-hmm. terminology is. Yeah, and that's one of the ways. I mean, there's management-intensive grazing, you know, MIG, as it's been listed. I don't know. It, it's just the whole system is based on looking at the grass as the crop, not necessarily the livestock. Yeah. yeah. So, so having a different, different focus. Correct. Right. That's, a, yeah. that's a good way to look at it. Yes. Farming grass. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so in that, I'm just. I also just wanted to one or ask about in that growth cycle, if things do get to that seed head and is less palatable, if there's a way to, um, is there a way to force the animals to eat that, or? Well, one of the well, they just look at you through the fence and well, that's the point of spoiled the animals. Some of it depends on your productivity goals for your animals. So you know you've got to realize that if if you force them to eat crappy feed, you're not going to have real good animal performance. So you need to think of it that way. And it's more with with dairy animals, it's like the production. You have to keep it constant and good all the season. And but with animals that you're raising for meat it's not quite as yeah so so let's take uh you know ewes that have lambed in the spring basically that's their most intensive time period is in the spring for nutritional quality but in the summer you know they're just kind of hanging out and their nutritional needs are pretty low so you can actually force them to eat a lot of crappy feed and because their nutritional requirements aren't very high high at that time all right well we do have a caller um i'd like to we have a caller, Allison, from Brooklyn. If you'd like to go ahead and give us your question or comment, please. Well, good morning. I'm enjoying the program very much. Thank you. And I missed the first couple minutes, so please forgive me if I touch on a topic that you haven't yet included, at least that I heard, and that is how to protect bobolink and pollinators 
given the needs of the animals for whom the pasture is intended, but wildlife also have some needs, and is there a way to balance this in farm management? And uh, thank you so much. All I'll right. Up and listen. Thank you, Allison. We'll, we'll address that here. We, we often get that question. It is, it is a tough balancing act. Um, there, is, there has been some research in Vermont. That I think if you search for Bobolink Vermont Project or Vermont Bobolink Project, you'll see some work that's done at looking at trying to figure out, you know, the trying to pr- protect that nesting resource for Bobolinks because they do nest in hayfields. And here we are mm-hmm. encouraging, you know, machinery to go into hayfields just when the Bobolinks are nesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a problem. It is an, an issue. Um, and you can set aside some of your fields to harvest at a later date, and then you use that feed for animals when they're not as they don't need that serious nutrient requirement. Yeah. One of the other things we're looking at is actually doing that really early harvest if you can, mm-hmm. you know, around that third week of May when it's optimum quality. But then you have to make sure you give that hay field a long enough rest period so the bobolinks can nest and, mm-hmm. and fledge their young at that point. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a balancing act there. And it, it, the one thing that I can do say is that we do have enough poorly managed hay fields in Maine <laughs> <laughs> that there are there's still quite a few nesting sites that bobolinks can use. Okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of those permanent pastures, I wonder, you know, if, if, the, if the dispersal rate of the livestock in, in that permanent pasture is broad enough and they have enough space, I wonder if they even kind of go around the bobolinks, you know, to a certain extent and just leave them alone. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. What about the pollinator piece? That seems I haven't had that. Yeah, because stuff needs to go to seed in order to do that. So it, it it's a matter of it's a it, it balance, I guess. Again, but you just leaving the edges of the field sometimes, and then mowing mm-hmm. them later on in the season to let some of that stuff go to seed. But mm-hmm. then you have to be careful about what it is that's going to seed because that seed is going to end up in your pasture. Mm-hmm. So you need to, you know. We look at, at managing fence rows and hedgerows a little bit as well and, and looking mm-hmm. at, at crops yeah. that potentially could be uh, pollination sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, planting some of that stuff in your hedgerows, you know, okay. some of those umbiliferase, the ones that mm-hmm. the pollinators like so much. Being able to support support the beneficials out there as well. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I did uh, want to mention one thing. Certainly. I just didn't want to lose it in my head. Um, the... Um, Another way to manage stuff after the animals have been through and you've got too much stuff that's grown up too far Mm -hmm. is to mow afterwards. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of farmers that have done an amazing job of turning around pastures by putting their animals in and grazing that down as much as the animals will eat as and you know and as well managed as you can do it but then mowing afterwards to get that other stuff cut down so then you get a a consistent regrowth afterwards and you get rid of a lot of things that you don't want that way too Mm -hmm. okay all right and then in terms of the maybe pasture weeds or the plants that you don't want growing um could you could you guys just mention maybe a couple of those or what maybe are the more common um common issues and i'll remind callers that we are having a call-in show here listening to common ground radio brought to you by mofka we're talking about pasture and pasture management today and that toll-free number to call in is 1-866-625-9378 but back to the maybe pasture weeds or some of the toxic plants that we we may see in a pasture that you don't want to let go yeah, and and obviously, you know, most animals avoid 
toxic situations in terms of toxic plants. Um, I have run into a few this year. It's the first time I've run into a couple poisoning issues. Mm-hmm. With what? Well, this spring, actually, we had people that turned animals out in April because uh-huh. they were running out of feed. And so there wasn't much that was green in some of those fields. And mm-hmm. so animals went to whatever was green, and some of those were toxic plants. So the the one that stands out was the situation with uh, sheep's, sheep laurel or oh. lamb kill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so they went right to that, and it was a, a goat situation, and the goats became oh. violently ill in uh-huh. that situation. Yeah. So Yeah, I had a goat farmer last year, the year before, that had that issue. And it was funny because <laughs> she took her goats out and one of the goats ate the stuff and the other ones didn't bother with it, you know, given the choice. I guess this one wasn't too too smart <laughs> or just too adventurous, I guess. Let's put it in a nice way. And that one ended up getting sick, although she did manage to pull it through. So that mm-hmm. was good. But yeah, that's a scary one. But we do have a lot of problem weeds. So we have mm-hmm. milkweed, um, you know, Diane mentioned the thistles. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a variety of weeds that animals will not consume. Um, bed straw is one that we see a lot of mm-hmm. spreading throughout the fields. And yeah, so we always look one. at those, at some of those, and, and look at each individual weed as a challenge to figure out how to manage it, whether it's through clipping that Diane managed talked about earlier in terms of trying to minimize that plant's potential to spread even more Mm -hmm. so keeping it from going to seed Mm -hmm. and then also timely clipping so we try and clip it when its root reserves are at its weakest so just before it flowers Mm -hmm. is when the root reserves on a lot of these weeds are weak but even then it's still hard so sometimes you know we need to think about renovating that pasture and and killing some of those perennial weeds and the way to do that would be through tillage if Mm -hmm. you want to do it organically and um, bed straw is one that's hard to kill uh, even chemically, it's hard to kill sometimes, so yeah. you need to think of strategies. And, and some of the weeds are ind- indicative of both poor management as well as certain soil conditions. So bed straw, and I'm sure Diane may have gotten a lot of calls about bed straw. I'm starting to get hundreds of them now, it seems like, because <laughs> it's starting to go to flower right now And bed straw. It smells really nice. <laughs> you see all those white flowers in a hay field, and you know that bed straw is going to be dropping seed anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it drops seeds really early. It's, the seeds yeah. are viable like as soon as the flowers come out, aren't they? And pretty quickly, yeah. Uh, and, and really, so when you think about some of these weeds like bed straw, it's an indication that the soil is probably fairly acidic. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know... Adding lime to that soil to raise soil pH is critical to maintain good soil quality and to mm-hmm. make good productivity of the grasses and try and minimize the spread of the bed straw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the animals will eat it when it, some animals will when it's young. It, mm-hmm. They will eat the bed straw. So if you use them early on in the season and get to them quickly before mm-hmm. it starts getting really stemmy, then, uh, then they will eat some of it. But. So there is a program that's been developed by a woman named Kathy Voth, V-O-T-H, and she has a program called Livestock Eat Weeds. (laughs) And so if you want to Google that and look that up, it's it's a great technique. And but one of the first things you got to do is make sure you're not going to teach your animals to eat a toxic weed. (laughs) So you need to to make sure that the weed is not going to have a problem. But bed straw is one that does not have any real toxic properties, and Mm -hmm. so you can successfully teach your animals to consume bed straw Mm -hmm. through her process. And she's out in Colorado and. 
Um, it's a real interesting process. I haven't worked with many farmers that have done it, but it is it, it has been successful in many situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has those animals that she works with eating some pretty funky plants. Yeah, so. yeah, no, it is, and it's great. I mean, if you can take the time to do it, it does take some time to teach your animals to do that. You're going to have to be wandering out there and giving them buckets of stuff every day, but it, uh, yeah, it, it does work for so it is. It's really neat. The other thing with the toxic stuff is some of the stuff, I mean, if you look like on the um, poisonous plants website, Cornell University has a really good one, but they even list red clovers, you know, and it's it's because it has a lot of estrogen kind of um, activity and other things. But the animals actually have a tendency to eat things. If they're given the choice, they'll eat something that has one toxin and they eat something that has another toxin that the two things balance each other out in some circumstances. So that's another way to go about it. And I'm, Oh, Fred Provenza, that's the fellow's name. He's out in Utah that has some good information on that too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really fun to read that kind of stuff to, to see what the, the animals actually learn to do all by themselves, it's really, you know, you think about a dopey cow, but they, they really do know how to balance a lot of that stuff out in their diet, so it's fun. And, and grazing is a learned behavior, and mm-hmm. selecting the crops that animals decide to eat is somewhat of a learned behavior. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and trying to get your animals to be good grazers, putting the little calves out with a cow and, and uh, letting the cow teach the calves to, to, to eat the grass. Learning what to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One plant that we didn't mention is that is pretty toxic is cherry. Okay. Um, So that one, and it's toxic when it's a wilted leaf. So that one is pretty prevalent around the state. So that one, you should be aware of that one being in the past. Cherry tree. Cherry trees and choke cherries. Cherry leaves and and the leaves. They need to be artificially wilted, meaning that if a branch breaks off a cherry tree that's on the side of your pasture and drops into the pasture, when those leaves wilt, they are toxic fairly quickly to animals. So that's a bad one too. You always want to scout the edges of your pastures and and look for cherry trees and get rid of them Mm -hmm. if you possibly can. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They could just eat them off of the tree, and it would be okay. It's correct. Funny yeah, the way fresh. it gets. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And if you know, in the fall when they drop off, they're not nearly as toxic. It's the artificially wilted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I just want to remind listeners that you are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we're talking about pasture, pasture management, and grazing. And my guests are Rick Kersberg. Rick Kersbergen, excuse me, from uh, University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Diane Shavera from MOFCA. Um, so I wanted to jump back just a little bit to the fertility piece. And Rick, you had mentioned uh, bed straw may being a sign of lower uh, pH in the soil. And we did mention about spreading manure after hay cuts, but I'm wondering... Um, about managing fertility through spreading of materials and then are the animals doing it themselves as they're actively grazing and kind of what that nutrient cycle might look like. Mm-hmm. So obviously when you know the animals are out there grazing, they're also spreading manure, but you also realize they don't always do it evenly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so normally they're going to concentrate where they drop manure is probably going to be around their water source mm-hmm. or around gates or areas like that. Yeah, or after wherever that was they were laying down, like yeah. shade, huh, right? Yeah, so yeah, Diane and I can argue about shade for a long time as well. We're not, we won't go there today, will we, Diane? But um, so, 
you know, obviously if you can manage how they defecate and mm-hmm. urinate, if you can put the water in different areas in the pasture, mm-hmm. to try and mm-hmm. spread that yep. nutrient source around, that will help a lot. Okay. Um, but I also think that, you know, getting your soil tested and checking soil pH is critical. Most people think of pasture as kind of a, a wasted area, and really you need to think about that pasture as a valuable resource. Mm-hmm. And so you want to treat it just like you would your vegetable garden, get that soil tested, mm-hmm. get the pH changed if you have to. Um, lime is, is normal application for raising soil pH. Mm-hmm. Lime is expensive. I mean, when you talk about adding one or two tons of lime per acre, yeah, which is somewhat the price of a standard. Has gone a lot. Yeah, so we're talking, you know, for a ton, it's about $90 per ton to $100 per ton for, for lime applications. And if your soil is real acidic, that's, you know, two tons of lime per acre. That's a lot of money mm-hmm. to invest. But you mm-hmm. have to think of it as an investment in your in your soil and in your resource. Because yeah, it really will change things for a long period of time. Correct. And there are some other residual materials um, that you can apply. So wood ash is one of those that we often mm-hmm. apply to raise soil pH. And there are certain wood ashes that are acceptable from OFCA standards and then mm-hmm. some that aren't. So you might want to check if you are a certified grower. Yep. So... But those are other residual materials that do raise soil pH as well. Yeah, they're also the <clears throat> excuse me the product from marine colloids too. That it's not allowed for organic production, but uh, conventional folks could use that too. Yeah, it doesn't have a great liming value, but it has some. Yeah. Okay. Not too expensive. Okay. Are there other um, nutrient sources other than lime that would be spread? Kind of, is that a common thing or mostly focus on on spreading manure from your animals? Yeah, it's mostly manure. I mean, it's, manure. It, 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 it's hard to justify if you are an organic grower to purchase mm-hmm. any nitrogen, phosphorus, or potassium sources that are uh-huh. organic nature. You, yeah. It's just not cost effective. You can justify it in a commercial vegetable operation or a vegetable farm. Yeah. But for a pasture situation, the the return benefit ratio would be hard to justify just in terms of the amount of money you'd have to spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. And even, I mean, even conventional farmers, the, the price of fertilizer has gone up so much. It's very rare that you find somebody that's actually putting fertilizer on pastures anymore. Mm-hmm. There are um, some folks that like to try to spread some kind of liquid seaweed on things just to give things an extra boost. I've heard of folks using that. And also milk. If you have extra milk and, you know, that's kind of a, I know Rick's looking at me like I'm crazy, but <laughs> it has been used. I guess if you had to, you know, something happened and you had to dump a milk tank or something instead of running it down the, the, uh, the drain, you know, yeah, running it down the drain, you, if you spread it on your pastures or, or whatever hay fields that that would at least some of the benefit would go there instead of going down the drain. So, mm-hmm. And, and the third option that is available for organic producers is poultry manure. Mm-hmm. And so right. a lot of them do yeah. use poultry manure from a facility in central Maine. Yep. And that does have some liming quality, too. It'll help okay. affect the pH some, too. So, okay. Yeah. So that is a good thing. You know, it's it's kind of nasty and it smells, so, so. timing your <laughs> spreading is important. Don't do it near the neighbor's yard on the 4th of July. <laughs> so that, that gives us, you know, an opportunity to talk about Maine Grass Farmers Network and the equipment mm-hmm. that right. if you're a member of Maine exactly. Grass Farmers Network, you can rent both a manure spreader as well as a no-till grass seeder. And, mm-hmm. um so Diane, I think, put a, together a grant a number of years ago to mm-hmm. help Maine yeah. Grass Farmers mm-hmm. Network buy that. 
equipment, and it is available for rent. So if you do want to do the poultry manure, this spreader is a, what's called a side discharge spreader and does a really nice job spreading poultry manure and other manures. Mm-hmm. So that is available for rent as well as a seeder, a no-till seeder, which allows you to introduce new species of grasses or legumes into your pasture without doing a lot of tillage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it works. It's worked pretty well for the folks that have been using it it does have to be used properly and you have to put the seed in at the right time of year so that you're getting enough water afterwards so that stuff actually gets a chance to sprout but, mm-hmm. but if you're interested in using that you can contact me at the mafka office okay and that seems like a way to introduce different plant species into the pasture right yep right. No, it yeah. does it's worked pretty well. I mean, some of the things people have put in are things like chicory. Mm-hmm. Um, chicory's got, and it's chicory's nice because it's a big broadleaf plant, so it's going to bring in lots of photosynthesis mm-hmm. um, to the areas. So, would work good if you've got an area that's kind of a little bit on the bare side. You know, it'll mm-hmm. it'll come up. But it seems like it might compete well with with others to be able mm-hmm. to get that sunlight. Yeah, man, it's a lot of nutrition in in chicory. <clears throat> okay. Um, and then I also wanted to ask some questions about um, kind of multi-species grazing or oh, mm-hmm. uh, mixing up cows and, and, and smaller ruminants, sheep and goats. And uh, first question, I guess, is do the different animal groups have different preferences in what they prefer to eat? Yes. Yes, and they also have different grazing behaviors. So yes. they graze and, and chew on grasses differently in different heights and different ways of, of getting it into their mouth. So, <laughs> so actually, bigger mouth, little mouth. Yeah, well, tongues and lips. And right. Tongues and teeth, yeah. Tongues so, I mean, right, exactly. It, it really does actually benefit to have multi species grazing because they can actually graze, you know, a multitude of heights and. Um, materials, so it does benefit. And mm-hmm. then also, if you add poultry into the mix, mm-hmm. they tend to help spread some of the manure. If there's big yeah. cow patties out there, they can spread some of that. Um, one thing, just one thing. It's important not to put the chickens in until after at least three days after the cows, because actually that gives a chance for the the fly larvae to develop, so that actually the the chickens are getting the fly larvae because the eggs are not. A little small for them to try to find, but the larvae they can find. So okay. that helps. All right. Sorry. It's all right. <laughs> but, you know, we, we get lots of questions, and I'm sure Diane does as well, in terms of trying to bring back woody areas or brushy mm-hmm. areas. And right. so if you add goats into that mix in yep. terms of goats and sheep and cows, and yep. you know, they all graze differently, and, and goats are going to consume more of the, the woody material and the forbs and right. the brush Browsers. materials. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. you know, trying to bring back areas with a uh, um, multi-species type of grazing system mm-hmm. is very beneficial. And we actually went to a farm yesterday in New Hampshire that, that did that. They mm-hmm. cut an area off. They put goats in there for a while, and they put in sheep, and now they're going to put in dairy heifers. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah, and the other the other big advantage for using multi-species grazing is, is that they don't get the same parasites. So... Um, and what what happens is a cow will eat close to sheep manure and a sheep will eat close to cow manure, but they don't share share parasites so that that is one way to control the the um, parasite larva heart hatches out of the manure. And so mm-hmm. they'll eat that, that those larvae and then they go through their digestive system and it doesn't bother the sheep to eat the, the cow ones or the... Or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. but goats and and sheep do share some of the same ones, so you have to be careful with that. 
Okay. So, but that's one way to control parasites with sheep, which is a big issue for sheep farmers, sheep and goat farmers. Yeah, that, that's one of the, the issues that I think really needs to be managed extremely well. If mm-hmm. you have sheep and you're on pasture, you're going to have a barber pole worm, mm-hmm. which is a really nasty Homuncus parasite. Homuncus contortus. Yes, it's a nasty, nasty <laughs> parasite. Um, and uh, so it needs to be managed in a way that, you know, you can manage your pastures to some extent, but it's it's a it's a tough parasite, and it's something that needs to get a lot of attention if your sheep are grazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. Okay. One of the things you can do um, also is the stuff when you seed things in, um, like the chicory and and some other plants, actually have a high le- level of tannins in them, which is the same thing that um, like pine trees. It's what makes it kind of bitter. That you know the mm-hmm. stuff on the bark and the oaks. Um, and um, those help to control parasites too. They they um, kill the parasite, the okay. worms in the in the gut, and um, some plants are actually very good for that. Um, some of them are, are bird's foot trefoil, which is a beautiful plant, but hard to get to grow in pasture. It seems like it likes not such healthy areas. You'll see it a lot on the roadsides. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> Rick is looking at me funny because that's another <laughs> thing we discuss. He thinks it's hop clover all the time, but I get out there and I find it for him. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, and um, the chicory also is very high. But there are other plants too. And actually, we're doing a SARE grant research. Um, mm-hmm. We started last year. We didn't have a whole lot of um, effect although I did talk to one of my farmers out in um, western Maine and he certainly had a pretty intense winter and we're using a plant called um, Ceresia lespedeza and another one called big trefoil um, which are hopefully a little bit easier to get established Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll see how it does he did get some of it to come back but they're not very competitive with weeds so I think it's going to be a tricky one if you wanted to get it established but they have been shown there's lots of research that's been done in in the south using the Lespedeza for parasite control Um, okay so that's a really neat plant. but And there is a, the issue, um, a little bit of nervousness with some folks because the Lespedeza can be um, invasive in southern areas. So they're actually not encouraging people to plant it very much. But um, we're, we're, we're keeping a good eye on it. So Okay. All right. And the um, – <clears throat> Not to go too far down the parasite road, but uh, <laughs> is it is it more of an issue for the small ruminants, yeah, maybe sheep definitely. and goats, than cattle? Yeah, yeah cattle are, are really susceptible when they're young, but once you're a mature cow, you've most mature cows have developed enough resistance that we don't worry too much about parasites. But okay. you know, you turn a calf out that's just been weaned; it's three or four months old out into yeah, a pasture. Calves, calves at mm-hmm. weaning, it's a stress time anyway, and yeah. then they get out there and the parasites hit them, and they can get pretty scruffy looking. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, we are um, getting towards the end of the show, and maybe there'd be time for one more caller at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. But we've been talking about uh, pasture, pasture management, and grazing. And I guess in the final, uh, you know, few minutes that we have, um, I know that you both, Rick and Diane, work in educational capacities. Mm-hmm. So I guess as we wrap up. Um, do you have some resources that if people are interested in learning more or something they could pursue on their own? Mm-hmm. Um, so Diane mentioned the Maine Grass Farmers Network, and there is a website, and they do publish a newsletter, or we try and publish a newsletter <laughs> once in a while. Um, 
so I think that's a, that's a great resource. There is another one that is really interesting, which is it's kind of a national resource called On Pasture. Oh yes, which right. Which is a, that's uh, a good one to mention. Basically, you you almost get an update every day from <sighs> she from does. some it's of the editors. Amazing the amount of and material those women get put together. Yeah. Ugh, I can't so. keep up. So it's a it's a really fun resource, and, and you know you'll you can search through that for topics and for right. variety of things. Yeah. Um, it's a great one to join. You yeah. can give them a little bit of money and they help support them. The other thing is is the Northeast Pasture Consortium, which is a group of of educators, NRCS Cooperative Extension people, and they try to get input from farmers. Um, they have a meeting every year, but they look for input from farmers is to try and focus research that is being done by okay. by the research centers in the in the country okay. or in the Northeast. So right. that's a really good one too. And I do report on that when I do my uh, article for the MOF and G at least once a year. I usually report on findings from that okay. meeting. Okay. Um, and then I know there's lots of pasture walks and things that I see advertised yes. throughout the. Throughout the season. Yes, we well, will have some this year, at okay. least a couple. <laughs> you guys are looking at each other like that's on the to-do list. Yes. <laughs> well, right. we have two coming up in the next yes. week or two. So. Right, yes. yes. And they will be good ones, too. I think both of those places are really doing a good job. So. Great. Worth Great. coming. All right, well, we are pretty near the end of our show here today, and this has been Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. I'd like to thank Rick Kurzbergen from Cooperative Extension for being here today and Diane Shavera from MOFCA as we were talking about pasture and pasture management and grazing. Uh, remember that MOFCA's Common Ground Radio is the first Friday of every month right here on WERU 89.9 FM, 10 a.m. that Friday, and we look forward to uh, you joining us in the future. Support for WERU comes from the Hamden Farmer's Market, providing local, farm-fresh vegetables, beer and wine, artisanal cheeses, grass-fed meats, cut flowers, seedlings, baked goods, and more.